0: Hey, welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Oshie here. You might hear an ad right here if this is your first episode. Hi, thanks for coming, but I have to play ads to help me pay the team that helps me make the show. So if you hear an ad, thank you. You help us keep the lights on. If you don't, well, ripper. You're going to get straight to Michael saying something cool.
2: If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com weightloss weight loss.
3: Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight,
1: the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place.
3: Animal agriculture is responsible for 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions, 38.5% of the world's habitable landmass is devoted to animal agriculture. Animals are an incredibly inefficient way to produce food. You know, the average cow needs to eat 12 kilograms of plants to produce one kilogram of beef. For a pig, it's eight to one. For a chicken, it's four to one. And so 80% of the crops that we grow around the world aren't eaten by humans, they're eaten by animals. Which humans then eat. And we only get 18% of our calories from animals. So it's an incredibly inefficient way to produce food. And so if we switched to just eating those plants directly, we could reforest 38.5% of the world's habitable land mass. And not only would that completely, t- it would eliminate the 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions, but we could capture huge amounts of the carbon that we've emitted back in forests and rehabilitate all of that land. That is the
0: co-founder and CEO of Fable Food Company, Michael Fox. And this is Better Than Yesterday. and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Uh, Grateful you're a part of the show. This is a bi-weekly podcast where twice a week I hope to help you make today just a little bit better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show is guaranteed to help you make today better than yesterday. That's what we're here to do. Been here since 2013. Every Monday I'm here with a guest. Every Friday I'm here with you. And thanks for coming, basically. If you don't know who I am, I'm a TV guy. I make, I guess... Reality TV, Big Shiny Floor TV, and now Documentary TV. I also have written a book, and I like to ride bikes and motorbikes, and I'm into electric cars, and yeah, there's a lot about me, but we'll get to that later. Thanks heaps for everyone that sent lovely, lovely messages about the documentary that came out on SBS last week. You can find it in SBS On Demand. Just look for Australia Uncovered. And we're the second documentary in that series, Australia Uncovered. The show is called A Matter of Life and Death. And thank you very much for all the wonderful, wonderful feedback, particularly on email, send.email at gmail.com and also on Instagram. It's very, very nice to hear from you. So thank you heaps. And please let people who you think might need to see the show, please let them know where they can see it. I really hope a lot of people that need to see it get to see it, particularly those in policy. I think that'd be great. Today's episode is is a real goodie, and I'm stoked, so stoked to have this guy on. Michael Fox is the co-founder and CEO of Fable Food Company, which is a company that create a product called Fable. What is that? It is an all-natural plant-based meat, and they make it out of shiitake mushrooms. Now, full disclosure, I don't know if, you, if you've if you never listened to the show before, I've been plant-based for nearly 20 years, like 19 and a half years, and vegetarian for about 25 like five years before that right we've been eating this stuff this fable stuff for over a year at our place and they didn't know that when they asked me if he could come on the podcast they had no idea that i loved it so when they said you want be on the show i'm like yeah <laughs> that stuff's delicious i love it it's really really yummy michael is a fascinating cat himself he's an entrepreneur He's a formerly meat-loving Queenslander, which I can relate to. He turned vegetarian six years ago. We talk all about that. And I guess he was looking to combine his cravings for meat with his healthier and healthy home cooking habits. And then that led him to create this. It's a it's a whole food-based, minimally processed plant-based meat. Now, when it comes to these things, and, and we talk about this in this conversation, what you put in your mouth is completely your business. I promise you. All right. But I already know it's important and you already know that it's important to you how your choices impact the world around you. And I feel it's important that we all know how we choose to feed ourselves and our families impacts the world around us. Like how sustainable is what we put on the table? That's an important question to ask. It's a tricky one because stone fruit in winter is nice, but it's important. Is the way we're eating leading towards enough food and water for everyone, or away from that? There's a few tough questions you might think about as we go through this conversation, certainly as we start to speak about climate impacts of the meat industry, which are not insignificant, let alone the ethical impacts, but that's a different threshold for some people to grabber. Thing is, you've probably already made a number of choices in your life to minimise your impact. You're probably already aware of your impact and you've probably made a lot of choices already. Like You've probably bought a more fuel-efficient vehicle, whether you did it so deliberately or not. The latest car you've driven is the most efficient car you've ever driven. You probably recycle your soft plastics. You definitely separate your recycling. You probably have tried to buy or look out to buy products made from sustainable materials or recycled partially or f- wholly recycled materials. You've probably already made a number of really simple choices around the way you consume to minimize your impact. The conversation about food though, it's a very personal one and Michael and I talk a lot about that about the emotion involved. And this chat will probably give you something to think about. There's plenty of resources at the, other side of the, at the other end of this chat, if you, if you had to think about things and you, there's plenty there's plenty of resources, don't worry, you won't be alone. But you can find out what they're all about at uh, fablefood.co, that's F-A-B-L-E-F-O-O-D.co. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation because he's a cracking guy. This is Michael Fox. Welcome to Sydney Lockdown. Where in the world are you?
3: Uh, Sunshine Coast for me. Oh, man. We've been, uh, we've been pretty fortunate up here. Yeah, which part of the sunny coast you at? My wife and I bought a forty-one acre property in um, Palmwoods, just yeah. uh, kind of half an hour in from Malula Bar. <laughs> <gasps> yes,
0: yeah. yes, you did, and I'm very happy to. I'm very happy to hear that. I spent a bit of time in that area. Oh, have you? Well, yeah, I went to um, uh, Udalo for the Chenrezig, the beaut- Buddhist retreat up there. I went there for a oh, while. Oh, amazing! Yeah, cool. It's a pretty special place.
3: Yeah. We're like five minutes from you, yeah. 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 It's, it's such a part of the world.
0: astonishing,
3: astonishing part of the world. Yeah. We've got some friends who live on the property with us and they did a 10-day silent meditation retreat at that yeah. Buddhist temple recently. Yeah. yeah.
0: I that's the one I did. It was back in 98. But that was really uh, transformative in my own journey. I was 24 and um, I'd already been toying with not eating meat. I'd already been yeah. uh, like kind of trying to eat less meat.
3: Yeah.
0: It was an environmental thing for me. And then it yep. was an ethical thing. And then it was a, eventually became a health thing once I realized how much better I felt. But I just, you know, I didn't know how to prepare, didn't know how to make the food. And then I went to Chenrezig, which is down the road from you, and ate proper Buddhist chef cruelty free food Amazing. for like a week and a bit or something. And I was like, this is incredible. I feel nourished. I feel full. I feel incredible. I feel great. Ah, uh, this can be done. And that was a real, yeah. you know, that was a real turning point in my journey. So good to hear. Well, you know, we only, I guess we all kind of just need that moment, which I know is a, a big part of how you got Fable up and up and running. You sort of identified that, you know, a lot of people, you know what, you know what we've just put a trampoline in for our youngest two years old. I don't know, we have a trampoline in the backyard and um, there's a ladder for the trampoline, but you can take the ladder away so we can't get into it. So people go, I want to jump on the trampoline, but there's no ladder. You know, so people like, I want to not eat meat, but I don't know yeah, how to get up to that part. and you just analogy. have to give them the steps, you know you have to yeah. go
3: here it is, and then boom, they're in. Did you grow did you grow up in Queensland? Yeah, um, actually, my dad was a mining engineer, so I kind of grew up in mining towns, but mostly Queensland, uh, a bit in the Northern Territory, a bit in regional New South Wales. And then from when I was fifteen, we moved to Brisbane, so I kind of finished high school university, started working in Brisbane. Yeah, so Queensland's home. What mining
0: towns like? I'm guessing like you watch Mount Isa and up, up there, and in, inland from Mackay and stuff.
3: Yeah, well, I was I was born in Broken Hill uh, in New South Wales, and where yeah, kind of BHP gets its uh, gets its name from. Uh, then yeah, Bar up near Mackay uh, in North Queensland. Um, probably the most exciting place was Groot um, Island, this little island in the Gulf of Carpentaria up in the Northern Territory. That was spectacular. It's like fifteen hundred kind of. People of European descent, 1500 Aboriginal people living on the island. What was I? I was like eight, nine, 10 years old. That sort of three and a half years we lived there, that age. And it was just the best. Like, you know, going out on with my mates out on, on our bikes out into the bush and climbing trees and. You know, you didn't have to worry. You had to worry about crocodiles. You wouldn't want to go swimming in any creeks. But other than crocodiles, you were kind of free to roam around, and yeah, no, no sort of dangers or anything. It was, it was awesome. Just loved it. And I think my love of, yeah, kind of the bush and nature probably stemmed from that those few years. Yeah.
0: We are all very much rooted, there, there is no love greater than the love of food is the famous quote. We are all rooted very much in trying to reconnect with times around the table with people we cared about through meals that, oh, this reminds me of something my grandma made or this reminds me of something my dad used to make. What kind of cuisine was going on for the first, the formative parts of your life?
3: Very much the traditional kind of Queensland steak for dinner two or three times a week. Wow. Uh, beef mints for dinner pretty much every night. When we were being healthy, we were having chicken and that was maybe once or twice a week. And then lunch, you know, meat every day, like ham sandwiches. And my mum did the best she could for making those things healthy. But yeah, we were we were massive meat eaters. And yeah, I, I grew up eating, uh, very much eating beef. Well, it's co- very Queensland. There's heaps of cows up there. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are <a> lot.
0: <laughs> Yeah, which is wild because, you know, I watch Survivor. I'm pretty sure they, they filmed it on a cattle property <laughs> out in Cloncurry. You're like, fuck, the cows get to live here? Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a good life. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty amazing. What yeah. was it like for you when you came after, you know, literally living in the bush and being in contact with First Nations people and seeing very traditional ways of life and things like that? As you moved into the kind of more cosmopolitan, metropolitan areas of the, of the state, particularly when you started getting among the sandstone of UQ, what was that like to you? Do you think it gave you a different perspective on the way people carry
3: themselves? That's a really good question. I mean, it exposed me to lots of other different people who I might not have met along the way. University was a great experience for being exposed to lots of different ideas yeah, I think yeah, universities are a breeding ground for you. You get people on the, you meet your first kind of activists on the left, uh, meet meet activists on the right, and you see the whole sort of full political spectrum. And yeah, yeah, it was kind of exciting getting exposed to all these new and different ideas. Yeah, and then doing things like going backpacking on holidays overseas, you get, get exposed to all of that, it's a bit, bit of a rite of passage for many Australians. Not, unfortunately, not the last few years, but yeah, so getting all those all exposure to all those ideas was awesome.
0: You talk about the political scene at, at university. It, it can be quite confronting. I, I knew a couple of kids that t- their dads were in the Liberals and they were in Young Liberals and Young Labor and they would get into fights at lunchtime. I'd be like, what are those yelling about? I didn't understand... <laughs> What the fuck was going on? Yep. My only exposure to it was when I was in bands in Brisbane, and I would go around to the UQ campus and put posters up, and we'd often be pasting over um, <laughs> uh, international socialists and uh, you know lung, young, you know all kinds of like huge political protests and stuff like that. You you ended up being the president of the the Queensland Law Society at that UQ, <laughs> like early on. That must have been like a hectic, turbulent uh, amount of opinion and you know. Ideas and ideologies coming out, yeah.
3: Well, to be honest, despite the name, it wasn't uh, so much a kind of political or even legal organization. was It was one of those party uh, social clubs at uni. So I kind of got into that through organising the um, law ball each year, which was like the big part. You know, thousand law students going out, big sort of annual party. Um, I did that for a couple of years and then kind of got elected president, but more on my platform of more parties, more fun than uh, than anything else. So you were Van wilder <laughs> maybe maybe not quite uh, not quite that extreme or that good at it but yeah yeah more that angle than <laughs> than the yeah, traditional sort of legal path yeah, but yeah. that did that did paint the picture I guess for what you
0: do now which is sell alternative meat products into into retail <laughs> because you were you're rubbing up against people who who sell booze and food for a living and you were trying to convince them to give the members of your law society you know cheaper beers and cheaper meals right?
3: Yeah, yeah, I did. I met I met a lot of uh yeah, a lot of awesome people in the food industry and it definitely exposed me to that. I think it it also exposed me to kind of entrepreneurship. So back then and, and I think it still exists now, the University of Queensland Law Society, yeah, exactly like you touched on, puts together kind of a discount card each year with um discounts to all the uh yeah, pubs and clubs and and restaurants, and then sells that card to students. So I think in our the year I was president. The card sold for ten dollars, and we sold ten thousand of those cards. So we kind of, yeah, hundred thousand dollars in cash in the bank at the start of the year, and that made for some really good parties. So yeah, putting that card together and selling it to students in O week—that that that was, I think, my first big exposure to entrepreneurship, and yeah, I, I loved it.
0: So your dad's a mining engineer. You don't go anywhere near engineering. Don't worry. Both my parents were doctors, and I'm two of four boys. None of us went anywhere near medicine. But you're the president of the law society. Obviously, next step, mate. In you go. Law firm partner. Off we go. Boat. That sort of thing. It's all there. It's all in the future. Did you?
3: Did you go down that path? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I didn't really pay attention to what I should do workwise after university. So you know, I was busy organizing the the social events and the and the L card. And, you know, I went to the career days and I, I studied commerce and law and, you know, the people who came to talk to the commerce law students were the investment banks, the accounting firms and the law firms. I think in my second last year, I did an internship at an accounting firm and didn't like that. Then in my final year, I did an internship in an investment bank. I didn't like that. So I kind of got to the end and I was like, oh, well, it's really only law left. I'll go get a job at a law firm. And I uh, yeah, went and got a job at Clayton Utes, one of the big commercial law firms. and. Um, Law didn't suit me, and I didn't suit law. It wasn't a happy marriage.
0: Tell me about that. Tell me what was it like to go to university for years and years and years, studying this thing, and land a gig at like a massive law firm where there's a clear path to the country club membership, the cruiser boat, you know, anchored down at Sanctuary Cove. It's all <laughs> like it's all in your future. It's all there. What's it like to get there and go to work one day and
3: go? Oh, I don't like this. Ugh. I mean, it was pretty clear for me early, like two months in. Uh, you know I had my office with a view of you know the river Brisbane River um go in your suit and tie every day, and all the lawyers would kind of yeah go into their office and shut their doors and work away on whatever project it was they were working on and I'd leave my door wide open and people would walk past my office and I'd be like, "Oh hey, Caroline, come in and say hi as they kind of walk past like depending on what type of law you do it suits different people, but I was at a big commercial law firm it suits kind of introverts and People who like to kind of focus on a meaty problem and and work on that, and I'm I'm not that person at all. You know, I'm, I'm a little introverted sometimes, but I, I I lean more towards extroversion, and so it was a pretty clear thing for me. You know, within two months that this wasn't going to suit me long term. So, yeah, then I had to go and spend some time actually thinking about what I did want to do, which I is, yeah, it's not something I've done until that point.
0: <laughs> well, that's okay. I mean, did you talk to your folks about it? Did you let them know, hey, all those, you know, those hex fees and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> I
3: don't think I'm going to use it. Yeah. Well, I think they were probably a little clever about it all. Like a commerce law degree is applicable in lots of different places. So it was good that I, you know, I think if you'd gone and done dentistry and didn't like being a dentist, that you're kind of a little bit boxed in there. But with something like commerce law, it's pretty broad. So yeah, they, they were fine with me Yeah, going out and exploring what it was I wanted to do. And dad was a mining engineer and had worked his way up into kind of management roles. So I then started to pay a bit of attention to what he was doing and yeah, thought, okay, well, maybe the this kind of business management type path um, might be something that would interest me. Where did you go? So I then went and did a graduate program at uh, Super Retail Group. So they own Super Cheap Auto, huh, BCF, uh, so into retail. And I loved it. So...
0: You come out of law and then now you're in retail, you're customer-facing. What was it about that that ticked your clock?
3: I love that there were so many different interesting aspects of that business, like starting with the customer, like your consumer research to understand what it is that the customer wants to buy, then, okay, well, what products are going to fulfill those needs? How do we put a range together in a store? Um, that you know has a story and a reason for the customer to come into the store, how do you market those products to customers, and then how do you source those products. So a lot of those products you know, come out of China. So sourcing in Asia and, and the whole sort of international element to it, supply chain, how do you get all that logistics um, being efficient. Right. Um, so yeah, I really fell in love with retail and, and particularly the sort of consumer psychology and understanding the customer. I, I, all of that stuff was really interesting.
0: From there, you went to Google. So you're combining this law background that you've got with this retail uh, knowledge now, and and now you're into the tech space. Where, as far as the customer is concerned, we're still on black and white TV. And when you're in at Google, and you're reading the internal documents, you're like here's what's coming. Like you know, you you can see five G twelve years ago. <laughs> what did that open your eyes
3: to when you worked at Google? Yeah, I mean that that really exposed me. I guess to the the kind of tech startup space and. Yeah, technology more broadly and just being able to see these big trends that were coming in and sort of get a bit of a sense for looking, trying to look into the future. I mean, so much of what Google was doing back then and, and I'm sure still is now was, yeah, trying to predict, you know, what does the world look like in five, 10, 20 years? And how do we build the technology products that help people to get access to the right information in that world? So, yeah, it really exposed me to all of that, which I fell in love with. So how did you get from,
0: uh, there was a there was a shoe company in the middle there, <laughs> yeah. which was building custom shoes for people. You raised a humongous amount of money for that. Yeah. You had 200 employees, you were in America, it was valued at tens of millions of dollars. And you're still young, man. You're not even 40 right now. So this is, you were not even 30 at the time. What's it like when something you've built so big doesn't work?
3: Yeah. It was tough, yeah. We had done well in this niche of women who were very passionate about designing their own shoes. You know, we tried to cross the chasm into the mainstream sort of fashion market and allowing the mainstream fashion consumer to design their own shoes. And yeah, the value proposition that we built just didn't resonate. And yeah, I mean it was it was tough. Like you said, we'd we'd raised a lot of money from investors, some Really good investors who we valued those relationships, and you know, we ended up having to ultimately ended up having to close the business down and sell the assets. So we weren't able to return the capital to those investors. We had 200 employees. Yeah, laying off 200 employees. It was like taking ripping a bandaid off slowly. You know, it was kind of like probably six nine months that we had to kind of lay people off because we were trying to sort of pivot the business and adjust our cost structure and see if we could make it work. As you touched on, we moved our headquarters to Los Angeles. So we had sort of 25 Australians with us in LA who'd who'd moved to the other side of the world with the business. They're all close friends and having to lay them off. Yeah, it was not a pleasant experience, not something I would wish for anyone to have to go through. No. What did you take away from it? What did you learn from that? One of the big things I think was Yeah, kind of resilience, like how to working through a situation like that. And there are probably a few things that helped me through that. My first child, my son was born kind of in the middle of all of that, closing the business down and he, he was healthy and great. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in that period reflecting on, okay, you know, this sucks going to work every day at the moment and doing all these things, but you know, my wife's healthy, my son's healthy, you know, that's kind of orders of magnitude more important in life. I'm laying people off. I'm not, it's not like I'm these people are dying and we're all doing our best to, you know, help them find other jobs and get their visas sorted out and all of those things. So I tried to reflect on the the positive things and yeah, look to the positives in life through all of that. And it, it was tough, but the reality is was yeah, yeah, there's much worse things that people have to go through than than what I did through that.
0: Not all of us are going to be able to have to have a conversation where we need to call up an investor who's given us a couple of million dollars and say, mate. Can't give you the money back. Not all of us are going to have to lay off one person, let alone 200. What words of advice would you have to tell us about having uncomfortable conversations like that?
3: Yeah, good, good question. I guess being honest and transparent, kind of the whole way through, helped a lot. So. Uh, you know we shared okay here's our strategy we're going to move from this niche into this mainstream part of the fashion market here's all the consumer research that we've done and why we think that's going to work um so the investors were on board with that and they they'd invested, based on that strategy. Um, and then we were, you know, showed them, hey, look, here's the data and why it's not working. Here's where we're pivoting and trying to adjust the business and take a different approach. And they're on board with all of that. So we were, we were very open and honest and transparent with them all the way through. And it was, yeah, it was just a, it was the failing in our consumer research, which led to us having an incorrect strategy. So, so those investors kind of when they invest in a business, particularly venture capital investors, their whole business model is that a small percentage of their businesses they invest in will do incredibly well and lots will fail. So so we also had investors on who, you know, could afford to lose the money and were and were in it for the big gain and knew that there was a big risk. So having the right investors on was helpful. Um and then yeah, actually calling them up and having that conversation. Actually, you had Mike Cannon Brooks on and he was one of our investors in shoes of praise, an investor in Fable as well. And I had literally had one of that that exact conversation I remember having with him calling him up and letting him know hey that the strategy hasn't worked and we're going to sell the assets but we're not going to be able to return your capital and his first the first words out of his mouth were you know how are you how are the team which was I found just extraordinary and I think also it was ha- the fact we had really good people on board as investors also you know made those conversations easier people who were empathetic to the situation and thought like that was just super helpful
0: talking with mike i mean crikey you'd be grateful to have mike as an investor because i don't think they all sound like that <laughs> when, hey, remember those millions of bucks
3: you wanted <laughs> uh, they're, they're gone <laughs> and to be fair not all the conversations were as easy as the one with no, him but uh, no but, but they were no literally no one who was kind of angry about it they all were yeah. on the journey they all got it
0: so uh, we were living in los angeles around about the same time and i I'd, I'd been plant-based since like i said like since the late 90s and um I remember moving to Los Angeles going, oh my God, there's a whole aisle of tofu. Like I could not believe (laughs) the availability of of meat alternatives. How, How did the journey away from meat start for you? Where did the first kind of seeds drop? Where did you get incepted? Where did Leo DiCaprio jump into your dreams and tell you? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I think it probably happened uh, about 15 years ago. And I don't even remember the specifics. Just, I just remember reading some articles, reading some books and just different things that just made me start to question our kind of food system. And you know, the average Australian eats 122 kilograms of land animals every year. I, I ate a lot more than that. Uh, I was a big meat eater. Um, and so I'd started to read some of those things and it had just made me start to question it. So I'd, I was reducing my meat consumption. I probably hadn't had the full conscious thought that I should go fully vegetarian and then vegan. But so it was probably 10 years from having the first kind of initial vague, semi-conscious thoughts of reducing my meat consumption. And then I started to, I uh, caught up with some friends who'd gone vegetarian and vegan and had some conversations with them. And then I read... Yeah, read a couple of books by Peter Singer, Animal Liberation, and then read another book, uh, Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer. And, yeah, basically as soon as I put that, I remember putting down the book, Eating Animals, and, um, yeah, just uh, that, that tipped me over to be vegetarian, and that was six years ago now. It is profound once you have that, oh,
0: all right, okay, well, I don't want to do that anymore. But then you're like, well, what do I do now? Do I just eat salad? Like what happens? then comes the rebuilding your shopping list and rebuilding your fridge what was that what was that like for you
3: yeah well like you said it was fortunate that i was living in la at the you know this was 6 years ago i think australia is even now ahead of where la was at the time but yeah a lot of vegan restaurants in LA. And yeah, like you say, the, the supermarkets, particularly in sort of around Venice beach and Santa Monica, where we're living, there's yeah, lots of plant-based products. So, I mean, it was still a tough journey, you know, like I had my, my minced beef, minced tacos that I, you know, cooked every second week, my spaghetti bolognese and, you know, all of those dishes that I love to make. So I had to go and find alternatives, but the great thing was there were really good plant-based alternatives for those foods, which made the transition transition Easier, you know, some textured soy protein-based mints in the supermarkets and that I could literally just swap out the recipes. And then so that got me over the initial hump. And then I got, as I'm sure you have too, got more creative with what I was cooking and started to use things like tofu and chickpeas and mushrooms and actually ended up with a whole completely different repertoire of dishes that I cook at home. And yeah. um, it's been great.
0: Once you have that transitional phase, I remember like initially getting things like fake bacon and stuff like that. And then after a while, I'm like, eh, it's, it's not really into it. <laughs> but I understood straight away. I was like, oh, people need this. They need this thing. Is that what you saw when you started thinking about, look, there's an opportunity here. People are moving. I'm using my Google brain to think of trends in the next 10, 20 years. Like people need that ladder to get from here where they eat meat all the time to where I am now. Well, I'll just cook with nothing but chickpeas and chickpeas have as much protein as the steak and it's low carbohydrates. They're fantastic. That men's health cover I did was all chickpeas. To get from here to there, they need that stepping stone, don't they?
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think for me it was two things. It was one providing that stepping stone, which I experienced myself in in going vegetarian and then vegan. And then secondly, you know I'm a pretty healthy eater. Like I shop at the local farmers markets up on the Sunshine Coast, and yeah, do a lot of my own cooking. My ISO sourdough is down pat. Brew some kombucha at home, um, and I eat a pretty minimally processed whole food based diet. So, so I wanted to do two things. So one provide a transition food for people, and then two develop a product that kind of aligned with that whole food diet so something that was based on kind of minimally processed whole food ingredients and was actually really healthy for you
0: obviously you're still kind of probably a bit rattled from the last business deconstructing (laughs) itself in slow motion at what point did you go you know what i'm going to go for it
3: again yeah, well, actually, the initial transition was—I was pretty ra- rattled. Like, yeah, maybe I don't know some mild form of PTSD but or something. But it's like a divorce.
0: Um, it's like everything—you lose the house, you lose the fucking—you have to find somewhere else to live. You got to create new bank accounts. Like everything, you got to it's build it. the whole
3: thing back together. Yep. And yeah, ten years of being focused on this, creating this thing, and then it, and then it didn't pan out. Yeah, so I didn't want to start another business. Actually, initially, I thought, no, I'll go work for somebody else, and I. I had gotten very passionate about the idea of wanting to help contribute to ending industrial animal agriculture. And I could see that the meat alternative path was, I thought, one of the best ways I could help contribute to that. Um, so I tried to get a job with other meat alternative companies. My wife and I wanted to move back to Australia um, with our, our young kids. Got two young ones now. And so came back to Australia. And sort of this was three years ago, I talked to all the meat alternative companies, but they were all literally one or two person operations three years ago. And, uh, you know, maybe if I'd been a food scientist, uh, there might have been jobs, but no one had a role for a washed up entrepreneur. So I I then did some interviews with companies like Facebook and talked to Google and places like that. And I was in this really tough spot, like the idea of starting a business again made me feel physically ill. And then the idea of going and working at a in, in a space that I just wasn't passionate about this time around also made me feel physically ill, and literally physically ill. So I managed to convince myself, okay, have a go at starting a meat alternative business. In doing that, you're going to meet everyone else in the industry who you've not already met, and you know maybe a job comes up, and at least you've left your options open. If the business goes well, you can focus on doing that, and if it doesn't, you'll have met everyone else, and hopefully a job will come up. So that's how I kind of. Convinced my brain to yeah, get over the. Get Mate, over I'm
0: the. all about I'm all about tricking. You know, part of us is you know <laughs> this really high functioning, thinking, considerate person. Another part of us is literally a Labrador waiting for a kitchen scrap. If you just yep. trick it, it'll just go and do a thing that you want it to do, and then it'll be eating the kitchen scrap and not realise that it's moved from yep. one room to the other room where you wanted it to go. You can trick yourself into doing all kinds of stuff,
3: and they're literally. Physically different parts of your brain in your brain, they, they sure those two are. things are physically two separate areas, they are. and they compete in your in your They brain. absolutely
0: <laughs> do. And if you know that you can trick the other one to doing something, yeah. and you don't let on, yeah. <laughs> you know, you are like ha ha, fooled you. And the other part of brain's like ha ha, I am doing I am doing something I want to do. <laughs> it's it, brilliant. It. It's it's but you, you know it's interesting interesting to, to, to get there. Yeah. As you as you are putting this you know alternative meat thing together. I mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, working at Google and, and when you're working at somewhere like that massive, you have access to g- 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 enormous amounts of data and you can see these mega trends emerging. You know, you talked about wanting to end industrial animal agriculture. I'm sure people listening know enough about the problem that we're in as a human race. So much talk about fossil fuels, so much talk about, you know, manufacturing, can you give us an idea of what the animal agriculture industry, besides the ethics of raising sentient beings for slaughter, besides that, what is the the greenhouse gas emission factor of the animal agriculture industry in the
3: climate emergency that we're in? So like you say, there's uh, in my mind, there's kind of four big reasons, which each on their own would be big enough reasons to end industrial animal agriculture. So one is health, the amount of meat that we eat is unhealthy. Another one is ethics, as you've touched on. Another one is pandemic prevention, which is uh, even more important now we're going through COVID. And then as as you've said and want to delve in on, the fourth one is yes, yeah, sustainability. So to answer your question around sustainability, animal agriculture is responsible for 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. It's actually more than all of transport combined. So we could electrify all the cars, planes, buses, ships, and that wouldn't have as much impact as if we stopped eating meat. And then the other, probably even bigger factor around sustainability is that 38.5% of the world's habitable landmass is devoted to animal agriculture. So I delved into like, why is that? And the issue is animals are an incredibly inefficient way to produce food. You know, the average cow needs to eat 12 kilograms of plants to produce one kilogram of beef. For a pig, it's eight to one. For a chicken, it's four to one. And so 80% of the crops, that we grow around the world aren't eaten by humans, they're eaten by animals, which humans then eat. So 80% of the world's crops are fed to animals, and we only get 18% of our calories from animals. So it's an incredibly inefficient way to produce food. And so if we switch to just eating those plants directly, we could reforest 38.5% Thirty-eight and a half percent of the world's habitable landmass, and not only would that completely t- it would eliminate the fourteen and a half percent of global greenhouse gas emissions, but we could capture huge amounts of the carbon that we've emitted back in forests and rehabilitate all of that land. Yeah, you know, there's a whole bunch of things we need to do to prevent global warming sort of taking off. But in, in my mind, ending industrial animal agriculture is probably the biggest. Th- what you've just talked about there is the that
0: is the very reason that I stopped eating meat. When I yeah, found that listen. out, when I found out, hang on what? There's more than enough food for everybody, but we feed it to animals instead. Yeah. And there's more than enough water for everyone, but we use it for animals instead. Wait, 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 wait. People are hungry. Let's feed people the food that will make them just as healthy, build just as much muscle, get just as much mad gains. Once I learned that, that was the thing for me. That was the this is so inefficient. (laughs) What were you reading 20 years ago to to read that? That's impressive that it was that long ago. I was working at a radio station and we used to have a thing where a guest DJ would show up. And like, it was usually a teenage kid who would be a part of, you know, the night show we would play countdowns This is before the internet. All right. So you couldn't just hear a song, any song ever recorded at the flick of a button. You had to kind of call up and request a song. Right. And so like it was often a teenage kid would show up and they would get on air and they would play some of their favorite songs. And that was every night this person would show up and they often had a parent with them. And it was this kid and their mum who was kind of a California-y kind of hippie kind of type. She was, she was quite intense. Probably one of the people who would have put up the posters I was postering over uh, at the university. <laughs> she was that kind of person. Anyway, I was eating an Indian chicken curry in front of her. And that's when she said to me, I don't know if you realize this, but this is how much land is being used to farm animals. And this is how much water is being used to farm animals. And it, she didn't even bring the ethics of it into it. And I just thought to myself, like that makes absolutely no sense. Like, if you were pitching a business idea to Mike Cannonbrook, and so like, hey, Mike, here's how it's going to go. It's going to be brilliant. We are going to take, get this, we're going to take 12 kilograms of the thing that we're ultimately going to sell, and we're going to use that to make one kilogram of the thing we're going to sell. <laughs> you win? Go to the moon, baby. Like, what investor would go, great idea, Michael, I'm in? Like, yeah. fucking nobody. It's so yeah. extraordinarily inefficient, but we have this. You know it's like we have we are tied to the the oomph that our car gives us when we hit the gas, which is why we're afraid of electric cars. You've never driven a Tesla model S on ludicrous speed it'll scare the shit out of you <laughs> so similarly we're also tied my grandmother's fitchkovar the the incredible Czech dish she used to make out of you know which reminded me of of a warm winter's night huggled and and you know surrounded by family. We have this emotional connection to this food. How are you able to with your product design, how are you able to get into that little niche there and try to tick those boxes for people without
3: it being meat? Yeah. So uh, my co-founder in the business, Jim Fuller, is um, he grew up in Texas, eating all those kind of delicious, slow-cooked meats, pulled pork, braised beef, beef brisket. Um, and then he'd worked as a fine dining chef for 12 years and then worked has worked as a mushroom scientist for the last 10 years. He went vegan for a year about four years ago. And during that year that he was vegan, he went back to Texas. He, he lives in Australia now. He went back to Texas. And he just like, he experienced that whole emotional like thing around, you know, he was going to barbecues and they were cooking all these meats and they were the meats that he'd grown up with. And he had this like emotional crisis while he was over there. And so he came back to Australia and he's like, I know that I shouldn't be eating meat, but how do I solve this for myself? And so because he was a fine dining chef and a mushroom scientist, he's like, well, why don't I take mushrooms and Try to recreate these things and give my try and give myself that emotional experience from mushrooms, and so so he started doing that and just making these products for you know, mushroom-based meat alternatives for himself to fill that emotional void uh, that he was missing. And yeah, from his perspective, that's how how he got into Fable and what we're doing.
0: My wife Audrey. She makes the most extraordinary things with it. Um, she makes briskets. She makes slow baked stuff. She makes stuff in the pressure cooker. We, it's such a, a variable thing. Like I, I, I bought this stuff well before I even knew you were coming on the podcast. And when someone said, hey, do you want to talk to Michael? I'm like, yeah, I want to talk to that guy. I eat that stuff every week. <laughs> How important was it to you to get that mouthfeel right, to get that chewiness right, to get the, I mean, the only thing, the only time I don't like Fable is when I'm digging bits of it out of my teeth with dental floss.
3: <laughs> but that's got to yeah. be part of the product design, right? Right, right. That's part of the experience of, of eating those types of meat. Yeah. I mean, for For Jim, it was yeah genuinely an emotional thing. He he needed to fill that void. So he was producing the products to fill that emotional void. You know, I came at it from the the business perspective and the consumer research perspective. And as as you've touched on, how do we create a product that helps people, that is, you know, the ladder up to the trampoline that helps people transition over to plant-based foods? And to do that, we need to get, you know, reasonably close to replicating the taste and texture of meat. And then how can we do that with mushrooms and and all natural ingredients?
0: Tell me about the, you, you talked about, you know, obviously animal agriculture is not the only kind of agriculture we have. There is monocropping agriculture, which is uh, really efficient. has got us as humans to this incredibly reliable food source where calories are no longer scarce. We can do all kinds of things. And we've managed to catapult ourselves forward with this, but there's some methods of Food agriculture that are incredibly damaging as well. Obviously, you need a lot of mushrooms, <laughs> a lot of shiitake <laughs> mushrooms. Tell me about that factor. Did you have to look into that and in ways that you could tick all your boxes as well as be guaranteed of a decent supply of these um, sometimes tricky to grow
3: organisms? Yeah. So regenerative agriculture and um, biodynamic agriculture is an area that I'm very passionate about and really interests me. My wife and I bought a 41 acre property recently on the Sunshine Coast and some friends live on here with us who previously ran a regenerative farm. Um, so we're, we've are we got some veggie garden beds in, we're planting fruit trees and we're actually kind of doing a lot of that stuff sort of personally on our property. Actually, we've got a lot of edible mushrooms that just grow naturally in the wild on the property too, which is awesome. So um, yeah, I'm personally very passionate about that Be space. careful of some of the mushrooms
0: in that <laughs> part of the world. The guy that told me about Chenrezig said he ate one on a bushwalk and...
3: Let's just say his his gompel was pretty interesting that day. (laughs) It helps to have a mycologist as a uh, business partner. take a photo and go, hey, Jim, should I eat this? Nope, don't Uh, eat that. Unless you've got really like the Grateful Dead, don't eat that. Exactly. Jim gets a lot of weird photos of mushrooms (laughs) sent to him with a lot of questions for Jim.
0: But are are the industrial, like you're obviously trying to source shiitake mushrooms at an industrial
3: scale. How do you... So that's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm personally very passionate about regenerative agriculture Culture, but meat is a two trillion us dollar industry it's two percent of global gdp it's it's massive and for us to make a dent on that and have a big impact we couldn't use the mushrooms that grow on our property because if we're out foraging for those and actually your, your producer rachel came out uh, foraging with us earlier this year when we ran some foraging tours in in the southern islands and yeah though, but those mushrooms we can't obviously we're not going to be able to put a dent in animal agriculture using. Mushrooms we pick in the forest. So, we when we were developing the products, we were looking at okay, what are the mushrooms that are you know grown at scale? And so, there's there's really two main ones. There's shiitake mushrooms, which are the most commonly grown mushrooms and commonly eaten mushrooms in Asia, um, and they've been grown for about 3,000 years in in Asia, agriculturally. And then there's agaricus mushrooms, which are more popular in European countries. And those are kind of the white button mushrooms we buy in Coles and Woolies. And those mushrooms started to be cultivated in France about 1,500 years ago. Um, So these two species of mushrooms, shiitake and agaricus, have got a long history of use. They're incredibly healthy shiitake mushrooms have been used in traditional Chinese medicine for thousands of years. And there's, there are reasonably big quantities of these mushrooms grown around the world. So we narrowed in and focused our development on those two species of mushrooms and our pulled meaty mushrooms, which is the one that you've been eating, uses uh, shiitake mushrooms. Um, they're a slower growing mushroom. Um, they grow on wooden, wooden logs that are actually made from kind of sawdust byproducts from the timber industry. So those get compressed into logs and then inoculated with the shiitake mushroom spores and mycelium and then and then they grow the mushrooms indoors on those logs. So they're they're a very, they're also a very efficient way of producing food. And then the sawdust logs, after they've grown four or five flushes of the mushrooms, it's a great way of composting the sawdust. And then that that's kind of really good soil, um, really good compost that can then go onto farms so yeah the mushrooms don't use much water they don't use much space to grow they're grown indoors they're composting the um the sawdust and the soil and yeah that's what we use predominantly for our products and then our meaty mushroom burger which we just launched into grilled and that's our second product that uses shiitake and uses some agaricus mushroom as well is that gluten-free
0: because that's where i get my beyond burgers every week (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yep. Yep. The oh, products,
3: I'm so uh, gonna uh, order one. It's gluten-free.
0: Oh, uh, because I, I always, I, I have a weights out the back and I always do extra heavy squats and I do extra reps on Fridays because <laughs> Friday's burger night and I always I make sure I earn that burger. So I can't wait. I can't wait for Friday. That's going to awesome. be amazing. So now you've, so you've, you've stumbled upon this thing. Like if there's one thing I've learned in the last year and a half or so about talking to people about global warming and climate change, this terrifying apocalyptic chain reaction that we are already in. in. It's pretty scary if you start talking about how frightening it all is. You mentioned the size of the market. What's the upside? What have we got to look forward to by transitioning away from animal agriculture? What have we got to look forward to? And can you give us an idea of how big alternative meats are going to be? Because you've probably seen a few indicators that this is where things are going. Can you paint us a picture of the next 10, 20 years of alternative meats?
3: Yeah. So I honestly believe in 20 years time, we're going to look back at eating meat from animals in a way that's analogous to how we look back at slavery. Um, You know, it's obviously very different, but we're going to look back at it and be like shocked. That might take more than 20 years to get to that point. But I think our grandchildren at least are going to look back at the way that we eat meat and just be shocked and horrified by it. And the reason that that change is going to happen is it certainly helps that there's vegans, vegetarians, and flexitarians, the people who want to reduce their meat consumption. And it's those flexitarians that we're targeting now. So People who listen to your podcast and have understand the reasons why they should reduce their meat consumption, and so you know when they go to grill, they pick a plant-based burger instead of a meat burger, or, or they're cutting back on their meat consumption. But the real way to change the market is simply to beat meat from animals on taste and price. So you go into Woolworths or Coles and you look at what's on special on the islands. It's corn chips, it's Coca-Cola, it's Oreos, it's products that are the cheaper on they're on special and People like them, they taste great. People buy food on taste and price. So we need to beat meat on taste and price. And the great thing is that's actually not that difficult to do. If we start with price, as we've touched on, m- meat from animals is an incredibly inefficient way to produce food. And so it's an incredibly expensive way to produce food. So that's why you know meat is more expensive than a can of chickpeas or, or other products in the supermarket. Because it's so inefficient to produce. So, our products, you know, we don't have, we're still two years in, so we don't have the scale that the meat industry has, but we sell our products already at the same price as the equivalent animal meats. So, Coles has a 250 gram pack of pulled pork and pulled beef um, that they sell for $7.50. Our product in Coles is a 250 gram pack of meaty pulled mushrooms that sells for $7.50. Uh, A one kilo pack, the distributors sell that for the same price as the cooked meat products. So even though we're not at scale yet, we're already matching the price of the animal meats that we're competing with. Actually, with Grilled, we sell our burger patties to Grilled for the same price that they buy their Wagyu beef burger patties, um, their premium burger patties. And, and Grilled have actually done a great thing and put the price of our burgers are actually even a little bit cheaper than their Wagyu beef burgers because they want to also, you know, they, they're good. They also want to encourage people to move to being plant-based diets. So so we're going to win on price. Give us another two, three years with some more scale. We're going to be 20, 30% cheaper than meat. So then if you're buying meat, you're actually having to think about, oh do I want to pay more for this animal meat product than I would for the Fable product? So we're going to win on price very quickly. And then, so the other thing is taste and texture. And there's different approaches to this within the meat alternative space. And, and it's great that there are companies taking different approaches. So beyond meat and impossible foods, which you've touched on, their approach is they want to replicate the taste and texture of meat exactly. They want the burger patty to be red before you cook it, turns brown when you cook it. They want it to bleed like a meat patty. They want to just replicate it exactly. And that's a, that's a really great approach. And that, that works for some segments of the market. Our approach is. We just want to make delicious, meaty food from mushrooms. So we're not necessarily trying to replicate meat exactly. We want you to have that same emotional experience that you have when you're eating a meat product. But we celebrate the fact our product's made from mushrooms. We use all whole food natural ingredients. And we we just want to make delicious, meaty food from mushrooms and yeah, celebrate that that's what it is. For people that lift weights and stuff, how does it compare nutritionally? Yeah, so this is a really, this is a really interesting question. So, uh, obviously if you if you're doing a lot of lifting of weights, then you need a fair amount of protein in your diet. 97% of Australians get enough protein in their diet. Less than 10% of Australians get enough fiber in their diet. Literally less than 10% of Australians eat enough fiber. So, when when we think about health, we often think about protein as being the thing that we're deficient in, but it's not. Most of us are deficient in fiber. And the issue is Animal meat has no fiber in it, like literally no fiber. And because we're eating, each Australian's eating 122 kilograms of uh, land animals every year, we're not getting enough fiber. If you eat a plant based diet, your risk of getting bowel cancer is almost zero. um, And it's the third biggest killer in Australia. You know, heart disease uh, uh, is strong correlations between red meat and heart disease. That's the biggest killer in Australia. So, Eating more fiber in your diet is one of the biggest changes we could make on a societal level to improve our health. Mushrooms are incredibly high in fiber. They're a really good source of fiber. And so are basically all plant-based all plant-based foods. And mushrooms have been used in traditional Chinese medicine for thousands of years. A whole bunch of it's Western science has caught up with all of that too. They're, they're great sources of vitamin D, great sources of B vitamins, which you can sometimes not get enough of in a plant-based diet. So yeah, mushrooms are great.
0: Just a quick moment away from Michael Fox to let you know about an episode that was actually just a few weeks back, and it's with one of Fable's investors, Mike Cannon Brooks. Yeah, not only did they atlassian create, you know, incredibly powerful business tools, and you know, the hundred and something billion dollar company, they're and not only is Mike interested in building huge solar farms, he's also interested in um, meat alternatives because that's a big part of the climate solution. And there's a, a great chat on this podcast, episode 397. And uh, that conversation tackles, I guess, a a broader look at how we as a country stand to be absolute winners if we play climate adaptation and climate action the right way. Here's just a little taste.
2: Industries rise and fall. We're well adapted to it as a society, and we should manage that rise and manage that fall. But as the fossil fuel industry peters away, the challenge that economies and countries have is they don't have something to replace it. We are so lucky that we have an amazing opportunity to replace it with something even bigger. If we could just kind of grab it and figure out the, the levers to actually get people to understand. It. We have incredible renewable resources, uh, sun, wind. Well, we have a lot of wind due to the Indian Ocean. We're in a very lucky place on the planet. Kind of the way the planetary winds work. We have a lot of sun that falls on our country that's very consistent. And we have a lot of space with nothing in it. That's largely what you need for solar panels, right? I would point out my day job at Atlassian, I'm a manufacturer and an exporter. We, we manufacture stuff and we export it, just like Australian industries classically always have. The total value of that boggles the mind at the size and impact it could have on the Australian economy. Man, we just got to go do
0: it. All right, that's episode 397 with Mike Cannon-Brooks. You can find it in this podcast feed. Just scroll on back and find it there. You might hear an ad here. If you do, thank you. If not, we'll get right back to our chat with Michael.
1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: When you go to work every day doing this, You've, you said you were doing jobs that made you feel physically ill or the, com- the prospect of doing jobs made you feel physically ill. How do you feel putting your time and effort, time away from your kids
3: playing Lego on the floor? How do you feel working on this? It is honestly a, a, just a privilege to be able to work on what, in my, in my view, is the, the thing that we could be doing to have the biggest impact on you know, humanity's future, biggest positive impact on humanity's future it took me a long time to get to that place to be able to work in, in this space but yeah I, I love it and actually I had a had a really moving moment yesterday I went and picked up my four-year-old from daycare and uh, your father's day is coming up so they've got these little write-ups that they've done and uh, I think the third line on his little write-up was daddy's job is fable he helps people not have to eat animals and just seeing, you know my four-year-old has picked that up and and that he sees that that's what I'm doing as a, as a job. Um, yeah, that was a really emotional moment for me.
0: Is it better for your mental health working on something that you truly believe in your core and is in alignment with your values?
3: Uh, A thousand times. Yes. To that answer. It's actually a fascinating experience. I don't think I I didn't, you, you obviously had uh, discovered your values and things um, a little bit earlier in your life. It took me, I think it took me a bit longer. Yeah, when I finished university, as we touched on, you know, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. And then when it came to starting the shoe business, Shoes of Prey, I was thinking just purely from a, you know, where is there a gap in the market and where is there an entrepreneurial opportunity? You know, I didn't have a particular passion for women's shoes. I loved retail and I loved technology. And so the idea of doing a custom women's shoe online retail business excited me, but it was really, you know, it was, Capitalism at its finest, you know, looking for the gap in the market and then creating a product to fill that gap. And then I went vegetarian whilst I was doing that business and had the realization we sell all these leather shoes. I like, okay, everyone, we've got to do a vegan shoe line (laughs) within Shoes of Prey because I feel terrible about this. So we launched a vegan shoe line and, you know, we got maybe 10 or 15% of our sales over to vegan shoe leather. But I felt like if our sales go up, you know this, and this didn't stop me from trying to make the business a success. But I'd go to work, and I had this conflict: if our sales go up, I'm actually selling more animal products and more leather. So I I had this kind of internal conflict, and it wasn't enough to make me quit doing Shoes of Prey. Not not at all. You know, it really took until the business ended up not working out for other reasons that I then took six months off and spent time really exploring, okay, I I have now realized I want to work on something that I'm passionate about and love. Firstly, what is that? And secondly, how do I go about creating a job or being able to work in that space? Um, So being there now in the place where I've done that is, yeah, it's a real thrill.
0: Mate, I'm so grateful to have your time today. Thank you so much. It's been really great to connect with you. Enjoy the, your beautiful part of the world for me. I can see you're wearing a jumper, so it's probably only 24 degrees up there today. So, <laughs> I
3: did have a swim in the ocean yesterday. Yeah, it's, you uh, did. It is nice and warm. Queensland. Oh, well, one
0: of these days I'll get back to my home country. Uh, have a great day. Enjoy your garden beds. Uh, it's been brilliant to talk to you, man. Thanks so much for your time, Michael. Thanks so much. And ladies and gentlemen, that was Michael Fox. You can find him on Twitter. He's M.M. Michael Fox. So like triple M and then Michael Fox. (laughs) Or one word. And you can have a look at what they're making at fablefood.co. He's a great bloke. And uh, I think there's a a lot of growth ahead of them. Pun intended. I'm very excited for them. Thanks heaps for listening. I really appreciate it. There's hundreds of other episodes to go and check out if this is your first time. Thanks for being a part of it. If you want to get into a few episodes but you don't know where to start as far as interviews go, just check out some Friday episodes for a while and that might get you in the swing of things before you get into some of the interview episodes. You can still catch the documentary on SBS On Demand. Just go to sbs.com.au and look up Australia Uncovered, where the second episode is called A Matter of Life and Death. Thanks so much for being a part of the show. Thanks, Michael, for being here. Uh, I'll see you on Friday. And um, a massive, massive thank you to everyone that helped me make this show, which includes um, Andy Ma, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, and Bruce Steele on research. I'm going to go upstairs and have a nap. That's right, I am. (laughs) It's my weekly nap. I'm very excited about it. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.